This podcast was produced in association with FunEmploymentRadio.com. Welcome back, nerds, geeks, and gamers. I am Jason Chevron Chops, and it is currently December 13th, and this is the Well-Adjusted Gamer Podcast. This week, I have in my virtual hands the fresh, hot audio for my first ever live podcast from the first ever Portland Podcast Festival. Now that I've had a chance to listen back through it myself, it definitely hits the mark. There are a couple of hot spots where the music I chose to play in the background was a little hotter than I'd like, but overall, it's very good. I did also hear my dumbass say Sega in place of Sonic a couple of times. Oh boy. Anyway, prepare yourself for my special edition of the Well-Adjusted Gamer podcast where I cover some of the best myths and urban legends of video game history, live for the first time ever. Be sure to do the thing and like and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter using at WAGPodcast. Send your emails to WAGPodcastPDX at gmail.com. Subscribe and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your own preferred podcast aggregator. And why not check out the other podcast I am now a formal member of, the Adventure Club Podcast. We just did a little phone interview with writer and actor Carson Mell, who has a new animated series premiering on TBS called Tarantula. The Adventure Club podcast can be found at theacpn.com. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Now, enjoy the show. Hello? Hello. Ah. Here we go. I got my Jay Leno cards. So, hello, Portland. They call me Jason by day, Chevron online, and Chops because I got them. And this is the Well-Adjusted Gamer Podcast. Awesome. Everybody enjoying the podcast festival so far? Yeah. It is incredible to be a part of this historic event, and hopefully I won't kill the fun too bad for everybody. But how about some shout-outs for Jane and Sweet Cannabis's Toco line of products for sponsoring this stage? Wow! Also, can't forget Small Town Brewery, Guardian Games, and Voodoo Donuts as well. Let's also give a round of applause to the awesome people that put all the pieces together behind the scenes. Sarah X. Dillon, Greg Nibbler, and Jason Lamb. Woo! Awesome. Now, why don't we kick off with a little bit about me and the show. So, I am a lifelong gamer and nerd who has dedicated a disgusting amount of time to playing video games for the past 30 plus years. I could probably hold multiple doctorates and be in a Metallica level band at this point if I put that time to something like better, you know? But it got me to this point, so mission accomplished, right? Um, 
Let's see. From there, the well-adjusted bit of the show. That's in reference to my and many gamers' anger management issues, if you will. Because I'm definitely one of those kids that had teeth marks in all of his controllers through the years. I reflect fondly on those memories of playing Sonic the Hedgehog late at night and getting to that point where I'm like, shit, shit. God damn it! And then mom from the other room, hey, calm down in there. Screw you, mom, you don't understand. Like, that was definitely me. Moving into adult life, working in corporate situations, it tends to force a little bit of moderation. Can't really have those outbursts, you know? But that just means I mostly suppressed that angry inner child, so it's still there beneath the surface, just lurking. Um, on the side of my real life, I've done a little voiceover work over the last few years and still dream of that day where I'll be in like the next Grand Theft Auto or some such, you know? But um, I also found podcasting is a great way to get my experiences and opinions out there to the tens of fives of people who might care. So here we are. I started this particular podcast to get the insider's perspective into game development because there's a huge indie game development scene here in Portland, if nobody's aware. There's like Pig Squad, the Portland Indie Game Squad. They have events, God, bi-weekly, tri-weekly, all kinds of stuff going on. So I wanted to get that kind of insight from those individuals that are in the industry making games making the the scene what it is also to get kind of the the call outs or watch outs for anybody else that's interested in getting into it because it's it's not the easiest career path but along the way i've also been lucky enough to get great insights and insights and access to a lot of the gaming events that go on around town stuff like the Geek Craft Expo, um, Rose City Comic Con, Betacon, the Retro Gaming Expo, as well as cultural meccas like Ground Control. So, any fans out there? Yeah, there we go. Um, the show has also evolved to include more discussions on the current video game industry and general nerd culture as well. Weeks when I don't have a guest, I just like to BS about games I've been playing, movies and TV shows that matter, and the usual nerdy medley. So. From that, I also started doing a gaming live stream as well, because of course, right? Streaming is the thing to do these days. Today, today is something special though. So since the Pacific Northwest is world renowned for its very real mascot, Sasquatch, I figured it'd be a good time to dig into the theme of mythology and folklore and talk about a little crypto gameology. The video game industry may not seem like a likely place to find stories of the weird and mysterious, but there are a few stories to be found. Even one rumor to have transpired here in a local Portland suburb. Of course, they range from the silly, like Lara Croft nude codes, not real, to the oddly terrifying, like Saddam Hussein using PS2s as missile guidance systems. Possibly real. Now, Prepare yourself for lots of the use of the words allegedly and supposedly, almost as much as an episode of Ancient Aliens. But here's something first that's just kind of plain cool and a little lesser known. So has anyone heard of the Nintendo PlayStation? Yeah. Yeah? Here we go. So most gamers do know that Nintendo and Sony are direct competitors these days, but there was a time when they were almost business partners. Back in the early CD era, Nintendo was batting around the idea and working on concepts for the Super Nintendo successor. In those workings, Sony was known to have helped put together a CD-based console that also played SNES cartridges. Sony and Nintendo had a deal in the works when Nintendo decided to pull a dick move and announced at CES, the Computer Entertainment 
what is it? Consumer Electronics Expo, I think. But during the trade show, unbeknownst to Sony, they announced that they were gonna start working with Philips to make games on their garbage CDI system instead. So, needless to say, that didn't work out. As of 1992, there were supposedly as many as 200 prototypes of that console built. But, because that deal fell through and the relationship never got rebuilt, they just kind of disappeared out into the ether. Until almost 20 years later, in 2015, a guy literally found it in his dad's attic. One of these consoles, just floating around. It turns out he had bought it, his father had bought it at an auction when his previous employer was going through bankruptcy. He thought he was bidding on a lot of silverware. $75 and two truckloads full of shit later, they've got this thing, they checked it out, it was pretty cool. They put it in the attic for like six years until the son started sharing pictures of it on the internet. The internet went batshit because nobody had ever seen such a thing, right? So now once they realized, oh, we've actually got something here, they pulled it out, now they take it on, on the road, they go to all like Betacon and different Comic-Cons and whatnot, showing it off, doing presentations, and it still works. It only plays Super Nintendo games and some random kind of like side-booting CDs and whatnot, but pretty cool nonetheless. Also, I had a chance to talk to the, the older guy, Terry, that owns the console, and he is a salty son of a bitch. That was very entertaining talking to him because he is completely over it. He never got it from the first step and still, like, just, just is blown away that people give a shit about a little plastic box that puts pictures on the TV. It, it was great. Now, for a myth some of our more musically inclined guests might remember, by a round of applause now, how many people know of Sonic the Hedgehog? Yeah. Now, I know this one is a stretch, but how many know of this guy, indie artist, whatever? Michael Jackson? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, a couple people. Okay, good. Now, finally, how many know that he allegedly worked on the soundtrack to Sonic the Hedgehog 3? Yeah. Get this. So, most of the info I'm going to talk about and the music clips I'm going to play, you're going to... I'm sorry, those are derived from a YouTube channel called The D-Pad. So once this is all over, definitely check out their video to get more of the nitty gritty details of it. But the long-standing rumor is that around 1993, Michael Jackson and his music producers, his crew, were contracted with Sega to make elements for the soundtrack to Sega 3. Sega claims that his contributions were completely removed, but there's still plenty of evidence to the contrary. There's things like how Sega has gone so far as to remove three of the original stage songs from re-releases of the game. It's a little odd. Or the fact that there are many Michael Jackson collaborators who are also credited on the soundtracks and the games. There's ones like Teddy Riley, who also produced the Dangerous album, who's also credited on Sega 3 and Sega C or Sonic CD as a music producer. Then there's also Brad Buxer, who was a keyboardist, songwriter, and also one of the key components of the myth that I will mention a little bit later. Credits from the game list many more of the music composers, almost all of whom went on to work directly with Michael Jackson on subsequent albums after this. Also, one co-writer said he still has recordings of Michael humming original ideas on his voicemail from like in the middle of the night when he'd wake up just feeling inspired or whatever, right? Now, Numerous songs from the game do sound very similar to Michael's songs, but like maybe at a higher speed or slightly different tones. 
One of the farthest stretches, which was noticed first back in like the early 2000s, was that the theme to the ice cap zone in Sonic 3 bears loose similarities to the songs Who Is It and Smooth Criminal. So let's check that out. That's the original. Like I said, pretty loose. They, they fit the beat, they fit the rhythm, but not much else. Well, then there's Knuckles' theme and the song Blood on the Dance Floor. bit of a, a drum beat, but it's definitely a portion of it. Now, the same thing with the Carnival Night Zone and the song Jam. Obviously, right? So there's little things like that, and then one of the last ones is the ending theme and the song Stranger in Moscow. Again, a little strange how they fit together so well, right? Now, harder evidence started cropping up in the early 2000s. In 2005, an ex-producer from the game finally confirmed that there were indeed contract negotiations and discussions going on with Michael at the time. One of the most obvious, though, reuses of Sonic material came in the form of a previously unreleased track called Hard Times by a band called The Jetsons. This song was written by our friend Mr. Buxer and finally released in 2008. This song is 100% the ice cap theme. So, that's the original from Sonic. <laughs> 100 like no doubt. kind of like that song too so <laughs> do check them out now later in 2009 Sega's ultimate Genesis collection contained a comment that the that um, Michael was actually originally meant to have produced the song the music for Sonic 3 in the end the story goes that Michael had actually just most likely been disappointed in the audio quality of the Genesis at the time so he backed away from it and left his team to work on it this is also around the time that the allegations of his kid-touching shenanigans came out, so there's also that that might have contributed. Another not-so-creepy myth that has lived on for decades was that of the Atari Tomb. 
Of course, Atari was the video game company of the 70s and into the early 80s, but by the early 80s, the global gaming recession had set in. Atari was hit probably the hardest of any video game company in history during this period. As part of this gaming crash of the 80s, Atari was making huge profits up until their port of Pac-Man and the worst game ever made, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. As or Atari predicted Pac-Man was gonna sell around 12 million copies, but they also spent as much as $15 million just to get the rights to make an E.T. game. Pac-Man did sell well, but only about 7 million copies. E.T., on the other hand, was a complete disaster. The rumor is that they took up to 5 million games, mostly E.T., still new in box, took them out to a landfill in New Mexico, steamrolled it, and covered it with concrete. So, after literal decades, this rumor just spinning around out there, part of the tomb was actually dug up in 2014. Microsoft got together some other companies, met with the local government just for an opportunity to kind of poke around. They actually found 1,300 cartridges and pieces of hardware, finally proving that this was real after all. They ended up auctioning off a bunch of it, so now artifacts from that dump can be found in private collections, also traveling displays going to places, again, like the Retro Gaming Expo. So, an interesting footnote, and one of the few myths that's actually true, so crazy. Now, though, we get into the truly creepy gaming myths. This is the stuff that kept people awake at night and led to some possibly gruesome results. Get ready to be creeped out. So, <laughs> yes. So first, why not something sweet and wholesome like Pokemon? There's nothing wrong with Pokemon, right? So, Pokemon Red and Green was released for the Game Boy Color in Japan in 1996, but it was apparently rumored to have caused the Lavender Town Syndrome. Supposedly, the original Japanese version of the theme you hear now, besides being depressing as shit, also contained tones imperceptible to adults that possibly drove children to suicide. Allegedly, again, those key words, allegedly there was an associated spike in suicides and illness in children's aged 7 to 12, with at least 200 dying soon after the release of the game. Yeah. In response to this, the music was changed in all subsequent versions, including the US, and the problem seems to have gone away. Now, the validity, of course, is always in question. These, these are myths for a reason. Now, this is where we get into the, the real dark myths, the John Carpenter level stuff that only the bravest true believers dare to investigate. First, a game called Kill Switch. Kill Switch was a game that featured an invisible demon main character and it deleted itself after completion. So this is not a game that you could beat and replay. It literally would fry the disc that it was on somehow, right? Now, it's rumored to be a Rumored to have been released in 1989 by the Carvina Corporation from the Soviet Union, it was a horror game which takes place in a creepy mine where the female protagonist supposedly, supposedly formerly worked. It's also said to be full of seemingly impossible puzzles which cause most players to quit after just a few hours. The characters are the invisible Ghast, who has poison and fire attacks, but you can't actually see him on the screen. 
The other one was Porto, who randomly grew and shrunk throughout the game. Many stories exist as to what actually happens in the game, including much gore and misery, but nothing can be solidly proven. Since the game release only consisted of around 5,000 copies, which again, self-deleted, very few have ever experienced the game, let alone multiple times. Allegedly, a copy of the game sold on eBay in Japan for $733,000 within the last couple of years. The guy that bought it swore that he would post a video playthrough of him playing the game. When that video finally did appear on the internet, it was just him sitting in the dark in front of the character select screen, sobbing to himself. <laughs> there was no playthrough. It broke him. So, finally, the Loch Ness Monster of video game myths. Polybius. In the early 80s, Polybius is rumored to have briefly appeared in a few arcades in a Portland suburb. The game itself was similar to others at the time, like Missile Command and Asteroids. The only outstanding physical feature was a weird control knob that controlled the game. The game itself, or actually the big difference between this and everything else, was the effects of playing the game, which included headaches, nausea, epileptic seizures, and even vivid nightmares and suicidal tendencies. So, the rumors further pose it that men in black would descend on the arcades every few weeks to gather data on the people playing the game. After only a few weeks of availability though, the games were unceremoniously removed from the arcades and never seen again. Today, as told by the Polybius Conspiracy Podcast, there's a local kid, now an adult, who takes people on $20 guided tours of the alleged neighborhood where one of the games once appeared. His story is that he had been playing the game a lot and had actually gotten quite far into it to strange, mind-altering stages. His Polybius experience culminated with an almost alien abduction-like event. He says he was taken from his home one night by mysterious people who had been standing in his backyard. He blacked out and awoke in a strange lab with vines holding him to a table. Another child helped him get free and they escaped the mysterious facility only to find themselves in the woods of Tillamook. They were pursued and separated, and he never saw the other child again. To this day, the game has never really been proven to have existed. There are, however, a few different games that have cropped up in recent years, also most likely recently made, with questionable provenance. There's also a newer indie game that's actually kind of cool, called Polybius, that celebrates the whole myth. It uses VR to immerse players in a fast-paced, insane world of light and color, without all those nagging suicidal impulses, so. Also, I missed a note here. Yeah, it's also, where did it go? There it is, out of order. In pulp culture, pop culture, Polybius has come up a few times as well. It's been in the background of a Simpsons episode and the newer game was actually recently featured in a Nine Inch Nails music video. So it's out there, people know. More rumors and stories continue to crop up and like all of these myths, there's a lot of deep rabbit holes to dive down. I encourage anyone interested to Google these stories and do check out all the YouTube videos and all the other research that's out there because it's deep. Now, with that, it's about that time. So I have to, of course, bring this to a close at some point. Hopefully you're all diehard fans now and will check out the rest of the podcast. Please go to 
wagpodcast.com, funemploymentradio.com as well. And it can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, all the regular podcast apps as well. Also, please tell all of your nerdy and gamer friends about the show. Like it on Twitter and Facebook using at WagPodcast. I also do my live streams on Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. This has been the Well-Adjusted Gamer Podcast. So, and thank you. Enjoy all the rest of the shows. I'll be signing the cards, too, if anybody wants to buy one, right? (laughs) Thank you all.